Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth, and I want to remind you to please rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod and me at DJ L O U A E X I V. Check out our merch hat and tea at poppantheonpod.com and. I also want to say, join our Patreon, Pop Pantheon All Access. We just posted an episode of Mailbag Questions. We answered Patreon mailbag questions about the Eras Tour, about Cuff It, about Kelly Clarkson's new music, about BB Rexa, about Madonna. So many great questions in there. I'm going to post a little clip from that episode at the end of this one. So take a listen to that if you enjoy it and you want to get more bonus content like that and album deep dives into records old and new like Blackout or Reputation or into new albums like Endless Summer Vacation and SOS, you can subscribe at patreon.com slash poppantheon or click the link in the show notes of this episode to join our Patreon channel. So stay tuned at the end of the episode for a clip from our new Patreon episode. Also, just want to throw out there as I occasionally do that if you are looking for a DJ for an event, for your wedding, for a party, for anything, I'm available and interested in hearing what you got going on. So Feel free to reach out if you are looking for a DJ for anything. I just want to put that out there occasionally that I do do that too. So this episode is a sequel to last week's deep dive into Lana Del Rey. Lana dropped her ninth album, Did You Know That There's a Tunnel Under Ocean Boulevard, last Friday. And we wanted to take a look at that record in the context of the broader conversation we had about her career last week. So I invited Pop Pantheon fave Shaw D'Souza, who was our guest on our Miley Cyrus episode, who also was our guest on a recent deep dive on Patreon into Miley's Endless Summer Vacation, and who reviewed Did You Know That There's a Tunnel Under Ocean Boulevard for The Guardian to come on the show and unpack our thoughts on Lana's sprawling ninth album did you know that there's a tunnel under ocean boulevard god i've said the title enough times last thing i'll say is that if you haven't listened to last week's episode about lana our deep dive into the rest of her work i highly recommend you do that first we're not going to do a ton of setup here so if you want to get situated into where lana's been before she dropped this album go listen to that we situated a little bit but that will be helpful so without further ado here is my conversation with shad d'souza Okay, I'm here once again with the wonderful Shad D'Souza. Shad, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back again so soon. <laughs> oh my God, it's my pleasure. I feel like we had a really cathartic processing of Miley's Endless Summer Vacation over on Patreon where we we processed a lot. So Yeah, it was, it was necessary. It was sure. necessary for sure. So if you haven't listened to that, I highly recommend you go check that one out. And obviously, as I just was saying to you off mic, I'm reporting to you live today from the mecca of Lana Del Rey, isms of Lana Del Rey's lore, Venice, California. It's me, your little Venice bitch. So I just wanted to make sure everybody knows that. And also I apologize for sounding like I'm in the tunnel under Ocean Boulevard because I'm sitting in a room in my parents' house that has really high ceilings. So I'm not actually reporting live from the tunnel, although I did think about driving to the tunnel yesterday to just like get a peek at it because it's like in Long Beach, which is nearby. I'm so jealous of that. I would love to do the tour right now. Someone should do like a tour of Lana's Los Angeles. Like that would be a gay destination event like if someone could like do like a guided bus tour or something of like all of the different landmarks in Lana's music 
and t- took you around LA and Los Angeles County. I mean, maybe it'd be weird and kind of depressing, but I feel like there's definitely some Lana gays that would partake in you that. You could do it as, as Patreon content. You could you could lead a guided tour. <laughs> Honestly, not a bad idea. I'm actually upset you suggested that because Frost is definitely going to try to make me do that. All right, so we're here today to talk about Lana's ninth album, Did You Know That There's a Tunnel Under Ocean Boulevard? The record dropped... On Friday, I know you've had it for a little bit longer because you reviewed the album in The Guardian. Now, I'm going to spill something here that you told me when we recorded Miley, which is that you had just heard the album for the first time and you were not particularly positive about it. You set me up to think that we were about to get the dud of duds from her. Then I saw your review the other day and it seems like you've come to a much different place, a much more positive place on this record. You've evolved, Sean. What happened here? I'm glad you brought this up because I was going to bring it up myself. But yeah, basically the, I, the thing that kind of always happens with Lana albums for me or has happened a lot the past few years happened which is that on first listen after which I spoke to about Miley I was like "Ooh, I don't know about it and because we can get into this but the thing about this album in particular perhaps more than any of her other records is that I don't think it's really really suited for listening to in one session and that's kind of the the way I first heard it and and I found that pretty crazy. The PR was kind of like inviting people to listen to it and you could sit, listen to it once for 80 minutes. And then that's how a lot of people wrote their reviews. I was lucky enough to get a stream and be able to listen many more times after that because I was kind of like a, a persnickety bitch about like, <laughs> I was like, I can't review this after hearing it once. But yeah, on that first listen, I was like, it's so dense. It's so meandering. I don't know really what to make of this. That was kind of my reaction to Blue Bannisters as well, and a little bit less so to Chemtrails, and now Blue Bannisters is my favorite of her albums. So I think it's just that thing of like, you know, it's it's like you say, like, if you can't walk around listening to it or like listen to certain songs or even certain kind of like 20 second clips on repeat, I don't think that's really a good way to digest one of her records i think it, it really is something you have to kind of live in and luckily you know after we first spoke about it i listened to it many more times and now i i can't stop listening to it like i i think it's really really good so are you listening to it now straight through are you saying that you don't like to listen to it in its 80 minute format or that now you just get it more and you are into listening to it because to me it's a real album album thing i mean i kept thinking about lana as kind of like one of the last real albums album pop stars i mean we were talking about miley and her sort of struggle to execute a effective album album in many of her swings you know she's tried for that too but is like not necessarily the greatest practitioner of the album album but i think lana is someone that really begs to be listened to as like a complete thought when she puts out a record so are, are you listening to it that way now or are you advocating for listening to it sort of in pieces or something like that kind of both i guess i just more mean that first listen through by the kind of like two-thirds mark I was kind of exhausted because like she's saying so much Mm. there aren't really many real choruses or if there are that they're in these kind of like six seven minute songs and also I mean we'll talk about it more but like fingertips specifically it's kind of like this black hole in the middle of the album and I mean that in a good way but it it's so much to digest that I think the first few times I listened to it I absolutely had to kind of 
and move away from it and then keep listening and and now i have listened to it the full way through many times but yeah i still find myself more often actually i find what i'm doing is i'm starting about halfway through and mm. then letting it run back through that way if if that makes sense and then like loop I, back to the beginning yeah so i'm usually <laughs> probably this is kind of weird i mean this probably says more about my kind of weird listening habits but yeah I guess usually I'm kind of starting probably around Paris, Texas. Right. And then I'm letting it loop all the way back around to Paris, Texas. Interesting. That's so interesting. Because I feel this like deep fealty to like do it like she wants me to. But maybe that's not like, you know, maybe that's the freedom of the streaming era is that you can like reconfigure it to your liking. But when Lana releases albums, I feel this like deep commitment to like seeing it through her eyes, I guess, because I I know how thoughtfully she sort of constructs these things, I guess. Totally. And like, I agree. I also do think the Grants is like a really good opener. And I think Taco Truck is a really good closer. But it's just, yeah, in, weirdly, that's just, this is the way that I've mm. naturally be- begun to listen to it. It's cra- You've cracked it open that way. I completely uh, agree with your experience. And I've had this experience before. In fact, my issue and I want to sort of set this up a little bit for people with chemtrails and blue banisters is that I do think Lana's records especially as time has progressed require work like they require a lot of active listening and attention and like multiple rounds of listening for them to sort of crack open for you and that's become increasingly true I think as her lyricism has become more sort of like poeticized stream of consciousness these songs have looser structures they're less sort of verse chorus verse chorus as they than they used to be there's a lot of density in the lyrical content. There's a lot of ideas going on. There's so much to unpack with each one that it can feel a little bit cumbersome, especially on first listen. And I found that when she released two albums in 2021, Chemtrails Over the Country Club and Blue Bannisters, I was just like, this is too much Lana-ness for me to deal with. Like by the time Blue Bannisters came out, I feel like I gave it kind of short shrift because I was like, I'm still trying to understand Chemtrails. And like, I don't have time for like another Lana album this year. But now that I've had time to go back and listen to Blue Bannisters in retrospect when we were prepping for our episode with her last week. I was thinking about how much Blue Bannisters does feel like a precursor to this. Can you talk a little bit about how Lana's music has evolved, I'd say, like, in the post-Norman fucking Rockwell era or from, like, Norman fucking Rockwell on? Like, where have we come with Lana, the artist? Like, how has she evolved from the person that we sort of knew her as when she arrived to us through her evolution to the sort of artistic and critical peak with Norman fucking Rockwell? Like, what is this sort of forward motion evolution of the Lana thing as you see it right now? Right. Well... This is where I have to get into the weeds a little bit because I know that we talk about Norman as this big peak and fulcrum point in Mm -hmm. her career. Mm -hmm. Me personally, I disavow that reading of her career Mm. and I I love that record. It's not one of my favourites. I Mm. think it has some of her best songs. I think a lot of people who kind of like hold up Norman as this kind of like high watermark of her career are probably the same people who were not willing to really give her a shot before that. Mm. And I think it was more about the culture changing than Lana changing. And like, I don't know, I feel like, I mean, you know, in high school, I was like so obsessive, like downloading all the old demos and stuff before Born to Die was released and and stuff like that. And it's like, she has always written songs like this. It's just that I think at the start of her career, right at the start, maybe there was some prioritization of, of stuff that fit 
more into this kind of like quite aestheticized character but then i think ultraviolence onward she has always really been writing the kinds of songs that people hold up as being kind of like her best ever on norman but i do agree that there is something really specific and unique about that album so i do understand why it was kind of a critical breakthrough for her but you know i think lust for life honeymoon ultraviolence all have songs that are equally as good and i think actually we're seeing something interesting now which is like ultraviolence has become the kind of like tiktoky like gen z kind of like that's the one people hold up as like the album which which is pretty interesting to me but anyway i digress <laughs> so obviously let's let's just go kind of conventional narrative here right so obviously she emerges kind of like 2012 with video games 2011 2012 it is widely critically acclaimed she is like such a counterpoint to everything else that's going on in pop music at the time which is very girl bossy very like Katy perry empowerment big synths and this is like very slow and old school and immediately there's so much controversy about like whether she's real or not or like whether she's kind of doing internalized misogyny or whatever and i think those early conversations still like in this album you right through to the end of this latest album you can hear her still being pissed off about the way she was kind of treated in those early days do you, you know what i mean oh absolutely i mean i think that this record deals a lot with the mythology around or like the sort of narratives that have surrounded her as an artist and just to sort of touch a little bit on i agree with you on some level that like lana's been writing songs as good or like the songs that populate norman fucking rockwell i think ultraviolence being to me the other counterpoint to that like the record i see those two records as kind of like akin to one another in some ways for me i see a sort of evolution in her songwriting that has occurred over that time period i think she's become not just like a better songwriter who has more substance to what she's saying than style because i think some of the things that like sort of turned people off at the beginning was like the style of the entire thing felt like the consuming idea as opposed to like i mean it's not that she didn't have things to say but there was sort of a clunky awkwardness to sort of the the lyrical poses she struck on like a born to die in my personal opinion i know that that but record is very divisive then you listen to a song like fishtail Right. On this album, which is may maybe my favorite song on the album, and she's yeah. singing, you know, Ella Fitzgerald in the air, feeling hella yeah. rare. It's like, that's a Born to Die lyric. Yeah, but it's been dialed back. I mean, though that's the thing that's been striking me about this record and I think is kind of the thing that sort of began a little bit on Blue Banisters is I feel like she's dialed back the kind of like Americana cliche that defined a lot of her earlier work and this music feels a lot more kind of like impressionistic and I don't want to say personal because I think her music has always been personal but there is something like this record feels like by far the most kind of like self-interrogative of any music that she's ever made just without needing like a ton a ton of like crushing style to sort of like convey that to you because even a record like Ultraviolence which contains a lot of pathos and you know a strange exploration of psyche which you know it to me maybe is my favorite Lana album i go back and forth between that and norman as my favorite but ultraviolence is still even in its stripped back sort of acoustic rock 
uh, analog instrumentation and recordings thing is still so hyper stylized and like you have this grand kind of like narrative that she creates about this girl who joins the cult and has this abusive relationship with this guy it all still feels like it's being funneled into some sort of like cinematic vision yeah i but i mean the thing i i understand what you mean and actually, I agree with you. I basically think Chemtrails, Blue Bannisters, and Ocean Boulevard are probably the first times she's really, really written personally. Right. And like this album, to me, is defined by none of the sort of like Americana cliche and feels like much more it's absorbed in death, contemplating death, contemplating how she's going to be remembered or related to by her family and sort of like the meeting of like the metaphysical, the scientific and the spiritual. I mean, she this record to me is sort of defined by a weird sense of like a spiritual awakening or something, which is so fascinating to me to contrast with the sort of the nihilism that I feel like defined the early Lana stuff, right? Like, I mean, Born to Die, think about the title in and of itself. I mean, Lana was defined by this kind of like dead-eyed nihilism or seen specifically through that lens. It's really interesting to hear her sort of like grasping at like another version of, you know, her obsession with West Coast culture with sort of like this like sunny-eyed, new-agey sort of spiritualism that I feel like is a big obsession on this record. It reminds me of something that I maybe she started to sort of get out with a song like Hope is a Dangerous Thing for a Woman Like Me to Have where her music has become kind of like in some ways a search to find light or to find happiness through the sort of midst of her depression or the midst of sort of her more nihilistic views on things. This record, how many songs is this record sort of gesturing at? Let the light in. The crack is where the light comes in. I mean, there's a lot of like feelings of both like an obsession with death, but also an obsession with sort of like trying to find hope and joy, which is like not something that I feel like was present in a lot of Lana's early work. It's just that I don't trust myself with my heart But I've had to let it break a little more Cause they say that's what it's for That's how the light shines in That's how the light shines in in terms of kind of like the arc of her career, I definitely feel that Chemtrails is an emotional low. It's like extremely dark and kind of like meandering and kind of wallows mm-hmm. in her feeling extremely misunderstood. Right. And then Blue Bannisters and this one, I feel like she is like actively hopeful and happy and and kind of like embracing i mean it's like the other day at the at the billboard awards she was like i don't have a long-term vision but i want you to know that i am very happy i think the word visionary could have been exchanged with any word when you're up here but if you were wondering for my fans i i don't exactly have a long-term vision at all but if you were curious i am very very happy and to be a female singer, that is a wonderful feat. When I released my first album 14 years ago, the waters were not quite as warm. So I'm really, I'm really happy for everyone who feels like it's a wonderful time in the culture to be themselves and to express themselves. It, it didn't feel that way in 2008, and I'm so grateful to be in the best company I've ever been in, and thank you. I feel like being happy is the ultimate goal, so I did it. 
Thank you, Billboard. Which I think is interesting. I think it says a lot about this album. And sh- and she said the reason she didn't promote Blue Bannisters is because she felt it was so personal and it was kind of something she just kind of had to get out of her system, which is interesting because Ocean Boulevard to me feels like it dives more deeply into her psyche. But I mean, I think it is interesting. Like maybe that was kind of like a throat clearing of her being like, okay, maybe I can write specifically about my life and my family and that kind of thing. Like one of the last songs on the album, Sweet Carolina, you know, that was co-written by by her sister and her dad. If things ever go wrong, just know this is your song and we love you. And then obviously from right from the first song on this album, you know, you've got the grants and it's all about her family. And this album is, is so much more about that. Doing the hard stuff. I'm doing my time. I'm doing it for I think you're right. Like, I think chemtrails and blue banisters are kind of these twinned kind of like things she really had to do in order to get to this place on Ocean Boulevard, if that makes sense. That makes complete sense to me. I do see this as kind of like the apex of some sort of like, I don't know, third leg of her career. Like if the first leg to me feels like Born to Die and the sort of re-release of Born to Die. And then there's kind of this like swing of ultraviolence through Norman fucking Rockwell as like the middle period. I sort of see her on some sort of new tip right now where she needs less uh, trappings than ever. Like what I love about this album, and I really do like this record quite a lot, like I just find myself liking it more and more the more that I listen to it, is that it just feels like she has completely sort of like let go of the sort of like what sometimes felt like a claustrophobic tense sense of style that sometimes I felt like kind of suffocated her early work in some ways to this sort of sense of almost like utter freedom that this record represents to me. Like, I see this record as the work of someone who feels completely artistically unencumbered. And there's something extremely pleasurable to listen to. And also, the truth is she did win. I mean, if you want to talk about like this, you know, the sort of communion between the commercial and critical evolution of Lana's work, this woman won out. I mean, she basically, by just being further and further into her sort of like Lana-ness, you even mentioned this in your review. I pulled out this quote where you said you could describe Lana Del Rey's career thus far as a Benjamin Button type situation. The more hushed, insular, formally experimental and self-referential her music gets, the more popular she seems to become. I mean, that is, you know, such a great summation of the ways in which Lana has defied kind of like a lot of the tropes of pop stardom and really won on her own terms. Like, Lana's able to make this music, which feels completely sort of like in its own aesthetic world unto herself, exactly as she wants it to be with no sort of overbearing from the powers that be in the music industry or you know, expectations of sort of what pop stars are supposed to do. And as you mentioned, she continues to just be as popular as ever or be as intriguing as ever, even to mainstream pop audiences. So it's a really fascinating thing where I feel like Lana's really won. Like she has achieved what, you know, many pop stars, you know, can never achieve, which is this level of artistic freedom, I guess. Yeah. And it's interesting is you you framing it like this is her removing herself from the trappings of, of her earlier work. Because I mean, something she has always made maintained is that you know when people are like oh the label is making you do a hip-hop song she's like well i like hip-hop i like right. these artists like right asap rocky is my friend blah 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 or like that kind of thing and to me like lustful life is one of my favorites 
maybe like a tied favourite with Blue Bannisters. Mm. And to me, this record is not dissimilar in palette from Lust to Life, you know. It, I right. think it's weirder right. and I think it's structurally, formally much more strange. Yeah, there's no Max Martin and Benny Blanco here, that's for sure. But that album... I think it's just as good as this one. You know mm. what I mean? And like, and basically, I think probably it's felt to me at least like Ultraviolence onwards, she has been doing whatever she wanted. And I right. say that because Ultraviolence, every song is eight minutes long. They're all psych rock dirges produced by the guy from the Black Keys. <laughs> Honeymoon, the first song, also seven minutes, basically completely silent. She mm-hmm. doesn't sing a note until like, a minute and a half into the song, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I do think she's always been on her own wave, but I think more and more she is looking to become more experimental or less and less she's interested in writing pop songs. Yes, but I right. don't think it's a, a question of freedom versus constraints because mm. I think if that were the case, Ultraviolence would have been completely different. Honeymoon would have been completely different. Norman would have been completely different. I don't think I mean freedom in the sense that I think she was being controlled because I agree with you that I think from Ultraviolence on, she has had basically carte blanche to do whatever she wants. I just think her artistry has evolved to a point where she can be that free. You know what I'm saying? Like it's There's yeah, a certain totally. thing about artistic evolution, which is like the further you get down the path, the more freedom you can have because you've developed your skill in a certain way. And that's how I see this record. Like there's lyrics here, like she's unencumbered by structure because she's able to sort of speak from this incredibly sort of free association. I I was thinking a lot about her poetry book, you know, and like what role that's played in the evolution of her songwriting. I mean, her music has always had an impressionistic feel to it. There's always been this sort of cinematic sense of like taking you into a world more so than sort of diaristic lyrics or something like that. It's more about like sort of enrapturing you in sort of like, oh no, almost like cinematic world I've always thought of her music as but this almost feels like she's gotten so sharp as a songwriter and so confident in her abilities in that arena that it's allowed her to have as you mentioned songs that like really lack conventional song structure and lyrics that I mean I found that when this record started to make sense to me when I finally on maybe the fourth or fifth listen because I try to resist doing this the first few times I listened to an album sat down with the lyrics you know what I mean and sat down and really started to just like look at them and sort of get a sense of like where this was and you know there's so much on here that I feel like is written from this almost like stream of consciousness thing that I guess she has touched on in the past but like is well she actually she said that for a lot of these songs Jack would play something or or Mike Hermosa would play something and she would get in front of the mic and just go fully stream of consciousness and just sing whatever yeah. came to her head so a lot of it is genuinely is that yeah like you were talking about the song fingertips like i kept thinking about this like there's this run of lyrics charlie stop smoking caroline will you be with me will the baby be all right will i have one of mine can i handle it even if i do charlie stop smoking So they said to carry a child. I guess I'll be fine. 
there's this like sense on that song of just like thought to thought to thought. I don't think I've ever necessarily heard her write in that way. And that's what I mean when I say unencumbered. I don't mean that she's unencumbered from like having some sort of Svengali-ish overhand on her music because I really don't think that she has had that. But I find this music to be the expression of an artist who has fought really hard to refine what they do. And this is almost like a celebration of the breadth of this person's craft, which I think is much more broad than it was even on an ultraviolence or something like that is more what I mean by that statement. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I totally agree. So what do you see as kind of, you know, we were touching on this earlier, but what do you see as kind of the major themes here? Like what is the sort of thematic thrust of this album as you see it? Like what is she sort of dealing with? We've talked about it being personal, but like what are Lana's preoccupations, I guess, in diving into her psyche as you see them on this record? Obviously she's thinking a lot about death. Yeah. She's thinking a lot about specifically the deaths of a couple of people in her family, mm-hmm. which quite a few songs in the middle touch on. Well, I She's thinking a lot about her strained relationship with her mother, which she's not sung about much. If you kind of track who she sings about in her music, especially on Chemtrails and Blue Bannisters, you'll notice she's often talking about Charlie and Caroline and her dad, but very rarely her mom. And this is kind of the first record where she sings a lot about her. And then there's also this kind of other thread where she's singing in a throwback to kind of her early records about true love and like the power of true love and the kind of hopefulness of that. And then I guess there's this third strain that kind of runs underneath everything where she is kind of, as she loves to do, it's almost kind of like she is addressing her haters in this very Mm. oblique way Mm -hmm. on quite a few songs. So obviously Taco Truck. Yeah. Grandfather, please stand on the shoulders of my father while he's deep sea fishing. (laughs) Even, you know, even in something like Sweet, the line, you know, I'm a different kind of woman. If you want some basic bitch, go to the Beverly Center and find her. (laughs) To me, that, that, you know, that's, it could easily be sung to an ex, but it could just as easily be like, don't treat me like you would anyone else. I'm a different kind of woman. If you want some basic bitch, go to... And then A&W, obviously, right. she is kind of also... Basically, she's asserting her right to be whoever she wants to be and to not have to bow. I mean, even on the song Peppers, where she's talking about, like, my boyfriend has COVID, like, I don't give a shit. That kind of thing. And it's like... I think people are reading a little too much into all of these lyrics collectively. Like, there's that lyric. I think it's on Grandfather, please stand on the shoulders yeah. of my father while he's deep sea fishing. Um, Kudos to you like, for saying that entire title twice. I really... Um, that, that's she, There's some lyric like, I'm a woman, regrettably a white one or something. Yes. She says, I'm, I'm folk, I'm jazz, I'm blue, I'm green, regrettably also a white woman, but I have good intentions, even if I'm one of the last ones. Yeah. I'm folk, I'm jazz, I'm blue, I'm green, 
well then on fishtail there's you know i'm not that smart but i've got things to say like <laughs> you know she's she's defensive but she's also being funny and like i do think in a lot of reviews i've read i think people are reading a little too much into how kind of anarchic and like teasing she's being of her detractors but there is this undercurrent in many many songs where she's kind of being like oh you don't want me to do this like you don't want me to call myself lanita then i'm gonna i'm gonna call myself lanita you know like which i think is really funny in grandfather she literally says i know you think it took somebody else to make me beautiful oh i love that lyric the image of frankenstein's monster. yes i know yeah i know they think it took thousands of people to put me together again like an experiment some big men behind the scenes sewing frankenstein black dreams into my songs but they're wrong I know they think that it took thousands of people to put me together again Like an experiment Some big man behind the scenes So I'm Frankenstein black dreams into my But they're wrong I'm so interested in how this record is both seemingly preoccupied with in ways how she's been perceived in the past and kind of like commentating on that or biting back at that as on Grandfather where she literally makes the comment about people thinking she's a Frankenstein's monster. And then at the same time, the way that this record seems to be essentially reveling in her ability to court controversy or to sort of defy notions of what pop stars are expected to do or respectability or morality in pop stardom, especially on this interlude, this Judah Smith interlude, where she features a sermon by this pastor who is like a Hollywood pastor dude who's kind of openly homophobic, and she's sort of giggling throughout it, so it's a little morally ambiguous what she's doing there. Look at the splendor of your skies. You created genius glowing in the heavens. When I can And I was thinking about that in the context of Lana sort of like doing the ultimate kind of like thing that pop stars are not supposed to do and sort of celebrating that she's allowed to do that, which is to not be a moral authority. I was thinking a lot about her abdication of that role. And I mean, to me personally, that's something that I, not that I want to celebrate anybody that sort of like acts cravenly immoral in their real life, but in terms of in their art, I think our preoccupation with having our pop stars be like kind of like moral beacons is like incredibly oppressive to art and like kind of irritating. And like, I do enjoy something about Lana's music in the way that it sort of lives in moral ambiguity. And I think that that song, as you, I'm just thinking about this as you're talking about the ways that she sort of throws shit in the face of her haters. To me, that that's what that interlude maybe is starting to sort of like poke at or wants to poke at a little bit is like questions about morality and like her disinterest in being sort of like the pop star as moral beacon that we sort of like thrust onto a lot of these people. I'm curious what you make of that interlude. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because she is like the kind of stuff she's talking about and doing I guess it can only be perceived as moral ambiguity it's that interesting thing right it's like people are kind of like okay pop stars need to be kind of like the moral arbiters of the world right and then the moment they do something wrong it's like oh they did this wrong and it's like okay so now you're making yourself the moral arbiter of the world I don't know (laughs) 
uh, that interlude, she's always been religious, more so than ever now, apparently, you know, because she's singing a lot about God and a lot about her pastor on this record. I know some fans are mad about that interlude. It takes a lot of effort for me to get mad about anything these days. I wonder if she means it to piss off is my question. Like, is there a part, is there a part oh. of her that, does it, is it meant as a provocation in a sense? I mean, she has to know that including this man is going to be something that is provocative. Yes. It's almost like too much for me to pass, if you mm. know what I mean. Yeah, I, I do. Of, <laughs> I do um, what you mean. I've been thinking about it nonstop of, well, trying to figure it out and I can't but, totally I've listened to it a lot and just like when is she giggling what is this meant to be and I mean the thing mm. that sticks out at me about it just maybe not even like in the context of the provocation but the sermon ends on the guy saying something like I used to think that my preaching was mm. mostly about you I've discovered that my preaching is mostly about me I used to think my preaching was mostly about you and you're not going to like this but I wonder if that is the sort of like thesis of this record in a sense of how Lana's even changed her own approach to her music making. Yeah, I mean, I love that line. I think that's really good. And, you know, between this and the John Batiste interlude, I prefer the Judah Smith interlude. The thing that makes it hard for me to pass this interlude is that when I listen to the album, it's that thing of like he could be anyone Mm. it feels like a sample or something the way it's recorded the way it exists on the record i don't really believe that she's like oh she's like platforming him like i don't really think that's what's happening and and that's what i mean it's like the, the point at which it comes in the record like i feel like you're already so deep into the world that it's almost this kind of like ambient haze Mm. and and you're right that final line is the one that's most clear and most significant i think and so that that's what i mean i mean i think something that she is trying to articulate a lot in her music lately is this idea that like taco truck or peppers or whatever you could kind of try and dredge up the the like quote-unquote problematic aspects of that song any of her songs but it would be so reductive to the song itself mm. and so kind of almost besides the point. Because And and I, and I think this interlude is kind of like a, a larger scale manifestation of that is this feeling of like, you're, you know, you're consuming art. You're not watching the news or like reading the New York Times right, or whatever. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I think that that's kind of the point that she's making is was what I'm saying. It's like, I think exactly, that she's, yeah. she's kind of reveling in the idea that she like doesn't have to create sort of a sense of morality in her art. Like art isn't necessarily here to do that for you. And I think she's maybe helping us remember that because I think as pop consumers, we've come to sort of expect this level of moral authority that like is actually kind of antithetical to art in some way. Right, because it's like she's dredging up the kind of like depths of her psyche and she's like, do you want me to reshape that so it makes you feel a little bit better? You know, and it it becomes a stupid question. Uh, Absolutely. I think that's the purpose of this. As I've been sort of like tossing around my mind, that's what I've come to. I want to talk about the notions of death on this record, because I feel like that is one of this record's main concerns or interests. The opening line is, do you think about heaven? So I think that this is definitely meant to be a contemplation of how she's thinking about death. And she approaches it from lots of interesting ways. I'm wondering, tell me what you think about this is, 
I was thinking, what is the tunnel, you know? And to me, I sort of had this moment last night when I was a little bit high and I was listening to this and I was thinking about if the tunnel is sort of like the passageway between life and death in the sense that she is saying, when's it going to be my turn in that song, i.e. like, when is it going to be my turn to die? And like, is she kind of like using the tunnel to instruct or sort of like the people that she leaves behind in terms of like how to commune with her in the afterlife or something like that? That was like one idea that I was tossing around in my head. When's it going to be my turn? Don't forget me. When's it going to be my turn? Here's the thing, it's like there's so much, this is a cop-out answer, but like there's so much to this record that I feel like I've been thinking about it non-stop for like <laughs> nearly two weeks at right. this point yeah. and I haven't even gotten to that yet. <laughs> She starts that song by saying, I can't help but feel somewhat like my body is marred by my soul. I feel like this is just like a theme that goes on and on through this record is like, what is death? What is it going to mean when I die? And also like, how has my career affected my relationship to the people that have died in my family is a thing that seems to come up a lot. Yeah. Like she talks about how, I think it's on Kintsugi, where she says, Chucky was there for three out of the three. I was there for third because I couldn't be there for the one who was closest to me. But I can't say I run when things get hard. It's just that I don't trust myself with my heart. But I've had to let it break a little bit more because they say that's what it's for. That's how the light shines in. So in a way, I think she's making like oblique reference to the fact that she's like avoided the concept of death in the past or avoided confronting death or perhaps used her career to avoid sort of like dealing with the emotions of death. And she constantly returns to this reference. She does this in a couple of songs to this Leonard Cohen song, Anthem, which talks about how there's a crack when the light, that's how the light gets in. There is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. She references that and that lyric in Kitsungi, and then she has another song called Let the Light In with Father John Misty, which is, I think, one of the more conventional songs on the record that has, like, one of the clearest choruses. But, like, there's this clear obsession with, like, letting herself crack open emotionally because she's avoided, like, the darker feelings that death has confronted her with in the past, I see as one of the themes here that comes up a lot. Yeah, and it kind of ties into a lyric from Blue Bannisters, one of my favorite of her lyrics, which is, you can't blacken the pages of the Russian poetry and be happy. Mm. And I think it speaks to this kind of anxiety she has about, like, the life of the artist as kind of, like, an inherently lonely one. Right. I think that recurs throughout this. And, and yeah, there's definitely that feeling of, like, she has these anxieties about being completely disconnected from her family, from being kind of a complete loner. You know, she's 
constantly talking about escaping, you know, on so many different songs that she kind of just talks about leaving and, you know, going someplace remote and that kind of thing. Right. Like on Kitsungi, she says, Daddy, I miss them. I'm in the mountains. I'm probably running away from my feelings I get when I think all the things about them. Yeah, exactly. And she, at the Variety Awards, maybe two years ago, she said this thing. I can't remember the exact quote now, but her life is her art basically Mm -hmm. and i think on these most recent records you know she is contending with that this kind of almost kind of the terror of like knowing that about yourself about Mm. knowing that you're this kind of like flighty kind of like loner artist and you know it's even like on on blue banisters or whatever you know that line if this is the end i want a boyfriend you know it's it's (laughs) this kind of like you know, she is like this eternally lonely figure. Right. And I think she's resigned herself to that life of loneliness, perhaps because I think maybe she sees it as inherent in being an artist. And then, yeah, here she's thinking about her family and kind of being like, how do I reconcile those two parts of myself? I'm interested too, as you're talking about maybe, because yes, her art has always been her life, but I wonder if she's also commentating on the distance she's put between herself and sort of the artistic version of herself in past work. Those walls have collapsed in her later work, as we were sort of talking about, this music becoming much more like clearly kind of diaristic and sort of introspective in a way that I think she used to process emotion through use of sort of character in a sense. But I don't think that's distancing. It's just a different a way, way right, of creating right, right. art, you know? And I think... Now she's more prone to just writing in this stream of consciousness way, but I think it would be a fallacy to think of it as now she's kind of closer to the surface than she was before. Right. I think that's true. I think that's true. But I do think there's a sense of, at least as a listener of Revelation to me, more so in this latter work than there is in the earlier work. As I said, like I feel like sometimes sort of consumed by style in some of the early work in a way that I do not at all. There are still tons of style here, obviously, because it's a Lana Del Rey album and no Lana Del Rey album isn't like, you know, interested in some form of style. But like, I don't feel like this is music led by style. I feel like this is music led by a true kind of sense of openness or extrapolation, a word that she uses, a a great word that she uses in the beginning of Fingertips, extrapolate. That's kind of like a sense that I get from this record as like a guiding word here. Like there's a real sense of like mining of self in an unfettered way that I've almost never seen her do before I guess yeah it does feel very vast in a way that in her catalog I probably only also associate with chemtrails Mm -hmm. it's almost like huge and desolate almost like foggy in this way right Right. like you feel like you if you go down one path too long you won't be able to see your way back to the rest of the record that's kind of an oblique metaphor what do you think about jack antonoff's presence here so this has like been her primary collaborator kind of since norman fucking rockwell less so on blue banisters but on chemtrails on this album he's a produced the majority of these songs there is a song on here called margaret that's clearly it is a duet with him and it's clearly about his relationship with his girlfriend he met margaret on a rooftop she was wearing white and he was like i might be in trouble he had flashes of the good life he was like should i jump off this building now or do it on the double Cause baby if your love is in trouble 
What do you feel about their collaboration at this point? Like, is it fruitful? What do you think he's bringing to the table here? Like, are there interesting things in the production here that you feel like are new? Like, what do you feel about Jack's presence here overall? I think he's kind of an ideal collaborator for her. Because I think the way they work together is basically he'll just play and then they'll kind of like symbiotically kind of build this song together. And I think it's with him that she has made a lot of her best work. And I think he's probably very in tune with her in terms of what needs to be a pop song, what can kind of be a bit more meandering Mm. with someone like Lana. I mean, I think Jack, you know, he's not the kind of producer to rein anyone in. And I think with Lana that works because her music is vast and expansive and she's not trying to make really tight hooks or anything like that she's right. she's looking for something different and i think in that sense it's good for her to have someone like him but that being said i do i really like the songs she made with her non-musician ex-boyfriend michael yeah. Musa. heaps of the songs with other people are really good what are the ones in specific you like that she made with hermosa let the light in i mm-hmm. really like Mm-hmm. Tunnel Under Ocean Boulevard she wrote with Hermosa Peppers and Taco Truck she also wrote with Hermosa and I really like them Met my boyfriend down Taco Truck Pass me my vape I'm feeling sick I need to take a bath And basically they were produced by Antonoff a lot of them but basically the way she wrote them was that when they were dating they'd just like sit on the porch and he would play guitar and she would just kind of like riff and sing over it and I think something like Peppers where it's obviously she's just kind of like saying whatever comes to her mind yeah I right. think that's a cool way for her to write I think Antonoff is a great collaborator. I think he's a good collaborator for a lot of people. I have my problems with him, but not here. Me too. I mean, I think that they've produced incredible work together, and I agree with you that it seems to be for all the reasons you're talking about. I'm curious how you would describe the aesthetic palette here. I mean, there's a lot going on here. Like, there's moments that feel like they're indebted to some of her more, like, folk Laurel Canyon-y sort of stuff she's done in the past. Then you've got the inclusion of a lot of, like, trap drum programming, which she's obviously done before on Lust for Life. She's done it on Honeymoon. She did it on Born to Die. Like, are there elements or flourishes to the production here that you think feel like different than anything in the past? Are they all sort of like wrapping up lots of different sort of sonic guises she's done in the past? Like, how do you view the sort of aesthetic palette of this overall, if you had to sort of sum it up? It does, to me, feel like it bears a lot in common with Lust for Life, to be really honest. Kind of like a more musically obtuse, Mm. but the way it, it has these very quiet kind of like piano ballads and like folk songs mixed with trap songs and there's like a feature from Tommy Genesis and that kind of thing and then also even the presence of Father John Misty he's something I associate very heavily with Lust for Life even though he's not on that album because obviously there's a song about him on that record (laughs) and also because it's super long right and Lust for Life to me has this similar kind of like art to it it's like a bit different but it feels very much like Lust for Life which at that time I quite liked it because it felt like it presented this unified whole of all the other things that Lana had been trying up until that point and I think this once again does that there's a lot of that kind of extremely cool folk guitar work that is on chemtrails I think there's a lot of the more experimental flourishes that were on blue banisters and then you've got the kind of trap stuff from her earlier work and you've got these weird 
long like song structures and then you've got multiple samples from Norman fucking Rockwell like literally <laughs> taken from that album yeah again much like Lust for Life it, it is this kind of synthesis of what she's been trying out for the past five years for the past 10 years and which is also why it feels very satisfying to me as an album because yeah. it's almost like after looking at these individual parts of her musical personality I guess this is kind of like stepping back and kind of looking at it all together right and I feel like a song like A&W does that like in the course of one song I mean I think that's one of the reasons that yeah. song has jumped out to people so much is it feels like because I almost feel like that song is like a song that is as we mentioned earlier kind of addressing the her career and addressing the perceptions of her throughout her career it then sort of like mirrors that in terms of the way that it morphs musically from folk ballad into a sort of like chant along trap anthem halfway through And in terms of sort of wrapping up or referencing past Lana mythology and sounds, the reference to Jim, the cult leader from Ultraviolence, is also name-checked here. And other records. And many of her demos. No, but yeah, I, I agree. Someone in our Discord was saying that Jim, some believe, is a reference to Jim Beam and that it's sort of like a, that Jim is not actually a person, but kind of a reference to alcoholism, which I thought was interesting. That's apparently a theory that floats around in the, uh, in the Lana world. There's multiple Jims because sometimes she's talking about Jim Morrison right. only by first name as well but yeah I think it's really funny so I reviewed A&W for Pitchfork and my review was like originally twice as long I think because I had kind of I'd, what I'd basically done was catalog every reference that referenced something else in her catalog oh wow um, I'd like kind of listed them all out and then oh my, my editor was like okay we're just gonna like cut these things and I was like <laughs> Yeah, okay, but you have to leave in these ones. It feels like a kind of like crash course in kind of like Lana signifiers to me. And I, and I really, really like that about it. This is a top 10 Lana song to me, I think. The song is so fucking amazing. <laughs> like, I think it could be her best song. Like, yeah. I just, I think it's really, really good. It's easily song of the year for me, I think. Yeah, I was having the same thought yesterday when I was listening to this. I was like, this song is like everything that I need and want from a Lana song. Like literally and figuratively. <laughs> is there anything that's not working for you on here like is there anything about this record i mean it is sprawling in length i've gotten more adjusted to listening to all 80 minutes of it at once as it started to like make more sense to me in my head and i'm like sort of getting under the hood here a little bit more it's like becoming an enjoyable 80 minutes for me whereas i like you at the beginning kind of found it like i was like this is a lot to take in in one sitting is there anything about this record that is not functioning well for you there that you that you don't like as much i don't like candy necklace <laughs> it's more a matter of personal preference it's not really about me thinking it doesn't work i yeah. just don't like it i just find it too kind of repetitive and mm. cloying mm -hmm. but there's really if i were to just put it on i wouldn't skip it and like i do like the kind of vast lush atmosphere and i like just kind of like sinking into this record you know i don't, yes. I don't think there's anything i'd really change about it 
I think that's the purpose of Lana Records is to be able to sink into them in that particular way. I mean, I think that's one of the things that distinguishes her as an artist for me is like, these are albums you want to put on and just sort of like, just lean into them and just completely be enveloped by them. And she's gotten so good at doing that. I mean, her albums just really provide that. And, you know, this one does it in like a way that can sometimes feel indulgent, but I think I like my Lana Records to be indulgent. I find the more that Lana indulges, the more fascinating she becomes as an artist to me yeah i totally agree is there anything that you hope this sort of pertains for the future of lana's work like where do you see this falling in terms of just like whatever trajectory she's on like do you see this as an end point to some sort of journey she's been on since chemtrails like as you were sort of laying out is there more for her to mine in the directions she's taking artistically here like what would you like to sort of see this pertaining for her future this is kind of a cop-out answer yeah but what i like about lana more than any other star is that i find it extremely hard to predict what she will do next Mm -hmm. but i always find that it is the right move i mean the ultimate expression of that right is that after norman everyone was like okay great she's the next great american songwriter she's she's doing this for the people like next album's got to be amazing and then it was this long extremely dark folk record that was almost a reaction to how much exposure she got after Norman, in my opinion. So I would hate to make any assumptions about what she'll do next, but I feel that it will be good. I think that that's a sign of how much she sort of trusts her own artistic muse and how fruitful that's been over the course of her career and thus she's engendered that trust in us as her listeners and fans like it's really been a rewarding journey to like watch her just delve further and further into her muse I guess and like I think to me this record feels like kind of the biggest celebration of that yet in an ever crescendoing celebration of that which is what I would maybe consider her career through one lens to be of an artist who's had as we mentioned kind of like the carte blanche to like do it her own way like this record really feels like an apex of that or one in a series of apexes of that for her so I've no doubt that she'll continue down that path and it's been a very very gratifying thrilling and fascinating ride I have to say after having spent the last couple of you know months working on these episodes about her just like really one of the most endlessly fascinating pop figures we've had this century no question about it so this record i look forward to like spending a lot lot more time with and i'm sure i will have continued revelations about as time goes on any song we haven't mentioned yet from this record that you'd like to send the show out on or like a record maybe a song we just haven't delved too deeply into that you feel just is worth noting here or that we can send the show out on let's go out on fishtail because it's my favorite and i think it's been a bit underappreciated in the discourse okay let's go out on fishtail shod d'souza Always a pleasure to talk to you. You too. Thanks so much. As promised, here is a short clip from our new Patreon mailbag episode. If you enjoy what you hear, you can subscribe at patreon.com slash poppantheon or go to the link in the show notes of this episode. All right, we're going to start off with a very topical question about Taylor Swift. Mm. Tess asks, Mm. 
Taylor Swift just completed the first shows on her Eras tour. What are your thoughts on the song choices featured in the three-hour setlist? Too much evermore, not enough. And also, what does it mean for an artist to be doing a greatest hits tour while still arguably in their commercial slash artistic prime? What do you think, Lou? Are you going to this? It's not coming to my city, Uh, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm going at the end of May in Jersey. I'm going to take the second part first because I think it's a more interesting question, which is I think we've talked about like maybe on the episode about Midnight's about sort of like what it's meant for Taylor to be like re-recording all of these albums and that being like a huge pursuit of hers and how that's possibly affected her new music. I think we talked about that in reference to Midnight's like Midnight's being like a prime example of a Taylor Swift album or kind of a new kind of Taylor Swift album that sort of like moves in a backward seeming direction to me. And this seems to be in standing with that idea in some ways. Like she's definitely in a moment where she's not maybe entirely sure like what's next for her totally as an artist. Like this album felt like fan servicey to me and this tour definitely feels fan servicey to me. Now, I think the tour was kind of a good idea on some level because she really had only a couple choices here, which were she's released four albums since her last tour. So like, that's really difficult. So I think if she like didn't frame this as a greatest hits tour, like would this set list have focused like mostly on those four albums? Like when she did on the reputation tour and 1989 tour, like the new album really was like the focus of the set list. So that's something that she's like done in the past. So I think this is an interesting way to deal with the fact that she had four new albums worth of material and like how do how do you kind of confront that? And obviously there's like a lot of pent up demand to see her since she hasn't toured since 2017. But like much like with the music, I wonder like is this a fruitful endeavor for her as an artist who we hope like continues on a forward moving trajectory and is still able to make like vital, interesting new work. I think this tour like is a little bit anxiety producing as are the re-recording projects in that sense. So like it's a, it's a double-edged sword. The other thing I will say is that the four new records, I would say two of them are my least favorite Taylor albums of the whole discography one of them, Folklore, I'm like pretty, I like a lot. Lover, I like a lot, a lot. So like, I'm not personally mad that we're not getting like a Folkmore plus Midnight's tour. Like that's, that would definitely, like, I don't even know if I would want to go to that necessarily. So like, I guess there's like a lot of different like ways that I could look at this and see it as either like a positive or a negative thing. The other thing that I will add to it is that I sometimes struggle with like Taylor taking on like the guise of a like centrist pop performer I kind of get a little bit perplexed and I think some of her more like kind of grating tendencies come out when she like tries to do like Beyonce Britney-esque kind of like visual gestures costuming gestures choreography like she can do anything she wants because she's got massive star quality and she's got the chutzpah to like do a lot of shit but it's not my personal favorite and like watching these kind of like small folklore and evermore songs as I've seen on TikTok being performed in this like really theatrical like stadium tourish kind of way is like sort of weird to me like I don't totally get it I'll be really interested to see what it feels like in person because just watching it from afar I'm like trying to translate like the folksy woodsy like smallness of those songs like into a stadium spectacular like seems like a strange thing so that's my like overall take on like what this means 
for her this era of her career. It's very in standing with where I feel like she's at right now, which is like a state of stasis, which is not the best place for like a pop star that, as you said, like I still feel like has the ability to make vital sounding music. So that's that. In terms of the set list itself, she really took the eras thing super literally and like split this into like segments of each era, which is like not the most like creative approach to this thing. Like I think I might've been more interested in a set list that like linked the whole career together and like provided more connective tissue. Again, this is speaking off the cuff. I haven't seen it. So there's part of me that feels weird about even like commenting on it in this way, but I was hoping perhaps that we would get like a more creative take on that. Like not to like stand Beyonce as I always do, but like the way that homecoming that was just a preview. If you liked that and you want to hear the rest of this episode, get more bonus content, access to our Discord, guest list at My Party Gorgeous Gorgeous, and so many more perks, you can go to patreon.com slash poppantheon or click the link in the show notes of this episode.